Everybody can hear? Yeah, I switched it. Are you able to, you got me now? All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. If you want to start recording, we'll get going. <clears throat> it's good to see you all. I've missed you. It's been a long, uh, a short week, but it's been a quiet week for me. I hadn't heard from anybody, and that was beginning to make me a little nervous. So really good to see you guys. Thank you all for being so faithful to be here on Sunday mornings for Sunday school. I know that for a lot of people, that's not easy to get up and do, uh, as proven by our crowd. But that's okay. We're going to have a good time, and we're going to continue um, our study of the creedal statement uh, and talking about God's decree. So let's open with a word of prayer, and then we'll get going. Most gracious Heavenly Father, it is good to be in your house and to be among your people and to be studying your word. We are so thankful that you loved us enough to allow us to know your truth, to receive it, to believe it, and to walk in it. We're thankful that we have a chance now to come and grow together in our knowledge of of your doctrine, of your teachings. And my prayer is that you will allow us to do that. I ask, Lord, that as we talk about these delicate and sensitive and often mysterious subjects that you will give us humble hearts and willing ears and uh, open minds to understand what we're being told through your word. And so that's my hope and joy for us as a, a people. Uh, and I know it's your, your desire for us as well to know your truth and to walk in that truth. So help us to absorb it and retain it and give us the willingness to go out and share it with others as we leave here today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to quickly remind you of a couple of things. So um, we've been going, I think this is about our 22nd week of Sunday school since I've been helping teach the Sunday school classes. And if you remember, we're in chapter three of our creedal statement. Chapter one was the word of God. We talked about the word of God and we stayed on that for about six or seven weeks. And then we did God. And we talked about uh, the attributes of God, the Trinity, And now we're talking about the decree of God or the decrees of God, which is his eternal uh, will as proclaimed in Scripture. And next week, we will begin a new chapter, chapter four, where we will talk about creation. And I want you to understand what the founders, the ones who wrote this creedal statement are doing. They're setting the foundation for us, and then we will get into time itself. So when you realize that God's word is eternal... And not only is God's word eternal, but it's the only way that we can truly know God. So that is why that chapter was the first chapter in the creedal statement. It's because these are the foundational truths that we need in order to know God. A lot of people might say, well, maybe we should have talked about God first and then the word. You see, and and in a sense, in our natural reason, that doesn't make sense. We're, We're Christians. We need to know about God. But what the creedal statement does is say the only way you're going to know God is through his word. So the word is the foundation. The word is the gift that he has given us to know him. Then we went in and we talked about God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, the attributes of God. Because we now that we know how to know God through his word, now we take his word and we begin to grow in our relationship and know who he is. In these last few weeks, uh, six or seven weeks, I think this week six, we've been talking about God's decree. And we need to understand that all three of these chapters are about the eternal, they, they really are an expression of the eternality of God. God's decrees were established before he said, let there be light. 
So God's word is eternal. It was there before he ever said, let there be light. God is eternal. He was there before he ever said, let there be light. And his decrees or his proclaimed will, his plan for us as a people was established before he ever said, let there be light. And so we need to understand that that's what the, the, the writers of this creedal statement are doing. They're allowing us to know about the eternality of God, that it's his word, it's his who he is and his will that is expressed in eternity. And through his word, through him and through his decrees, we can know him and our, our future as well. So now uh, this will be our last study in the decrees of God. Next week, we're going to step into time. Let there be light. And then the plan's going to unfold and, and play out before our very eyes. And that's what we're experiencing every day, right? Life. And so um, I wanted to make sure that you could see that, that his word is eternal, God is eternal, and his decrees are eternal. And they were there before he ever said, let there be light. Like all three of these chapters that we've been talking about for the first 21 weeks of our study is the eternal plan of God, who he is, and how we know him. And those are all eternal. Um, again, as we talk about the decrees of God, um, we, I, I handed this uh, paper out to you a couple weeks ago. We're not going to use it today. You don't have to have it. I just want to quickly go through the 10 statements that it made to help us to remind us what we've been talking about for the last week, six weeks. God's decree is eternal. It is immutable. His decrees comprehend all events. His decrees are not conditional. They're not based on if. They're based on thus saith the Lord. The decrees of God are um, based on the fact that he is sovereign. He is God and he is in control. And one of the premises about grasping the depth and the beauty and the wisdom of his decree is realizing that God is good, that God is eternal, and that God is God. He's good, and everything that he decrees is good. I went to a funeral of a dear friend that died yesterday before work. I had to go to this funeral, and the truth of the matter is, it's good that he passed. Yes. Now, we can't see that, yeah. and I can tell you that most of the people in that congregation could not see that either. But for the Christian, I can rest my soul and my spirit and my hope and my life on the reality that whatever takes place, it may not be good, but it is decreed and purposed in the one who is. And so that helps to give me confidence. Not only that, we understand that God's decree uh, determines the free actions of men. And that's one that we've struggled and wrestled with, isn't it? If I have free choice, why, how is it? That God has already determined what I'm going to do, and yet I have free choice. And that is something you'll wrestle with the rest of your life. But if I can realize that God decreed everything that I'm going to do, and it does not negate the fact that he allows me to choose what I choose, it just shows how wonderful and how wise he is. And he did not base his decrees on what he saw that I was going to do. I do what I do based on what he decreed. Again, in all of this, what we're doing is, is we're allowing God to have his right as creator, 
and eternal sovereign to do as he pleases, to do as he wills. And my will is always secondary to his. He is the first cause of all things. And when I learn to rest in that, I find hope and assurance. So not only that, God himself works in his people the faith and obedience, which uh, is called the conditions of their salvation. Your salvation was decreed in eternity before he ever said, let there be light. You as a child of God were on his mind before he ever created the world. And this world was created for you. And the eternity that is coming is created for you. You were in his mind. You were uh, a part of his plan. And everything that resulted in your salvation was his working out his decree in your life and the lives of others around you. And again, that gives me a rest and a hope. Now my assurance is not based on a choice that I have made, but what he decreed. We were talking, I, I, I was reading something from a systematic this week that really reminded me of something that I had forgotten. And it is that regeneration is a work of God. But conversion is the work of God and my work. Conversion. I am slowly being changed into the image of God. And the reason that that is taking place is because he is working in me, but I am also working out what he is working in. You see how that works? You see how that works? So, the ripping out of my heart of stone and placing a heart of flesh in me and filling me with his spirit and giving me a new eternal life was his work. When Jesus said, you must be born again, that is a work of the Spirit. Not a single one of us in this room ever chose to be born as a baby. That was God's work. You see, now you and your wife uh, consummated your marriage and you uh, fertilized an egg, but all of that was a part of God's plan. And it was God doing those things. And when the baby pops out, he doesn't choose his birthday. He doesn't choose what color hair he has or what color skin he has. All of that is a part of God's work. It's the same way with your salvation. God regenerates you and saves you. And that's his work. And now the rest of your life as a child of God is now working out what he's worked in. So it's not like God... Uh, eliminates you having choices. But we always need to remember that God's choice is the first cause. And realize that he always chooses good. So the decrees render events certain. All of the prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in Jesus and that are going to be fulfilled in the end times are based on his decree And they're going to happen because he said they will. And those decrees were not based on what he saw people that were going to be doing in the future. They were based on this is his will. This is his plan. So God is sovereign. Um, While God has decreed the free acts of men, the actors have been nonetheless responsible. So we are responsible for our actions. 
Nobody can say, well, God, you made me this way, so that's why I act the way that I do. And so, again, as we finish up this, this chapter on God's decrees, um, I want to remind you of how sensitive of a topic this is. Let me get my... Uh, can I borrow one of your bulletins? Y'all have two? Okay. So... Um, some of the things that we've talked about in the last six weeks or so have been very sensitive subjects. I can tell you that in most Southern Baptist churches, if you come in and start talking about election and predestination, you're going to be labeled a heretic. But the reality is, is that election and predestination are clearly taught in Scripture. Now, you need to go to Scripture yourself and to determine what the Scriptures are teaching about election and predestination, but they're not words that we should shy away from and hide from and act like, ooh, that's horrible things. They're a part of the beautiful plan of God. Election and predestination is part of God's decree and a part of his plan, and we don't have to hide from those or consider ourselves heretics because we claim to see them in Scripture. They're there. And you can just act like they're not there if you want to, or you can dig in and find out what is God's word trying to teach me about these things. And I think, and what we've learned in the last six weeks is what God teaches us about those things is God is in control. God is God. God is eternal. And his will and his plan will be done. And it does not negate our responsibility as human beings. And he, he, does, not, he does not keep us from... Thinking freely and acting freely on our, of our own accord. And our actions and our freedoms do not negate his decree. And so um, <clears throat> Wayne was talking before we started the class today, uh, and I think I mentioned this last week, but you were talking about Spurgeon. And Spurgeon said something about election, a couple of things about election and predestination that I thought were really neat. One, he said this. He said, God does not paint a yellow stripe on the back of his elect. If that were the case, I would be running around in my congregation and lifting up the coattails of all the men to see who they were. You see, the Bible teaches us that in the body, in the church, uh, in, the, in the physical body or the physical church, the, the people that come here today and worship, there are going to be wheat and tares. There are going to be true believers and non-believers. And it's not up to me to sit around and try to pick out who they are. That's God's work. You see how that works? And so I'm not to run around. And so when we talk about this election, um, what we'll see in today's uh, statement of what we believe is, is that the doctrine of the high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. That men attending the will of God revealed his word and yielding obedience thereunto may from certainty of their effectual vocation be assured of their eternal election. So what it's saying is, is this is a... High mystery. Now, when we talk about mysteries in the Bible, you need to understand that when Paul uses the word mysterion in Scripture, he's not talking about something that Perry Mason has to come and solve. That's not what the word mystery means in the New Testament. It's not something for Scooby-Doo and the gang to figure out who the bad guy is and pull the mask off of. A mystery. Mystery in the New Testament is something that in times past was not known, but now through Christ Jesus it has been revealed. 
right? So the mystery of the church in the Old Testament, they thought, and we're going to see this in today's sermon, the church was the temple, the place that you come to worship God. But the mystery revealed in the New Testament is, is the church is the body of Christ. It's a spiritual body. So when Paul talks about the mystery of the church, he's not talking about something that's secret and nobody understands. What he's talking about is, is that in times past, this was something that was not known. But through the coming of Christ and the giving of the Holy Spirit, this has now been revealed. Okay? So the mystery of predestination is not something that we're not able to understand. It's something that has now been revealed. And again, it's a precious doctrine and it is a mysterious doctrine. It's something that I don't need to just be running around and bragging about. You see, if a person is truly the elect of God, the last thing in the world that that is going to do is make them proud. If you truly are God's child... He truly loved you enough to send his son to die on the cross to purchase your salvation. He loved you enough to send his spirit and to claim you for his own. You're going to live in a stark reality that I don't deserve this. And that if it was not for the grace of God, it would be me who is out there dead in trespasses and sin today. And the beauty of that is, is that he loved me enough to reach down in a world full of people who did not deserve him and said, nope, I love you too much to let you live that way. And that should be, it's, what that should do is that should create an eternal humility in me. I'm never going to be able to brag or boast about my salvation. And the truth of the matter is, if I'm truly saved and God is at work in me, I'll never brag about the works coming out of me. Because it's God who's working in me to do and to will what he pleases. And so one of the things that a lot of people think is, is that this election or pre- teaching of election or predestination makes people proud and arrogant. Well, if I'm of the elect, then I don't have to ever worry again. I can just live the way, any way I want to live. That's not what a true child of God ever thinks. A true child of God does not say, oh, I can just go out and live however I want to live. The true child of God says, Father, what is your will for my life? You see how that works? And so there is never anywhere in the Bible where it teaches us that the election of God makes a person proud and arrogant. Now, the Jewish people did become proud and arrogant. And it was because they grasped their, we are God's people and you are not. But you see, election and predestination are not lights to shine on us and who we are. They're light to shine on God and who he is. And the moment that I begin to take that light for myself and use it to talk about me and my self-will, my self-righteousness, my self-sufficiency, what I'm doing, who I am, I flipped it on its head. And I'm abusing the beauty and, and, and the essence of what he's done for us. So, again, 
when you think about those terms and you think about what are you basing your hope of salvation on? And so many people, I, you'll say, you say, well, if, if, uh, if God were to say to you, if you were to die today and go to heaven and God were to ask you, why should I let you into my kingdom? What would you say? And most people will say something like this. Well, I trusted the Lord Jesus. As my, I trusted you as my Lord. And I came down the aisle and I gave my heart to Jesus. Now, those are all realities, and they're true, and they're beautiful things when they happen. But that's not why I'm getting into heaven. The reason I'm getting into heaven is because God made a promise to me, a promise that was uh, established in eternity past, that was played out in eternity, and was given to me through his son and what he did on that cross for me, and through what he and the Father did when they sent the Spirit to confirm in me who I am. So the reason that he allows me into heaven is not because I, 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 I. It's but for the grace of God. God is a gracious God that loved me and forgave me and saved me. God is a gracious God who forgave me, a proud and arrogant, self-righteous, self-sufficient fool. He reached down in this world full of people who deserve hell and wrath and said, not you. And it wasn't because of anything that I've ever done or will do. It's because of who he is. And he gets the glory for that. So think about it. And, I, and I'll, I'll say the statement, then we're going to finish up this, what we're talking about today. Which statement gives God the glory? I gave my heart to Jesus, or Jesus gave me a new heart. In which one of those statements does God get the glory? He gave me a new heart. That's exactly right. You, you see how that works? Now, did you give your heart to Jesus? Yes. If you truly are a born-again, blood-bought child of God, you gave your heart to Jesus. But the only reason you gave your heart to Jesus is because he first gave you a new heart to give. We're going to learn today in our sermon that the human heart is desperately wicked. We're going to learn today in our sermon that Jesus is going to look at a bunch of people that profess to believe in him and say, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. So they gave themselves to Jesus, but he did not give himself to them. It said because he knew what was in the heart of men. So the question is not, have you trusted Jesus? The question is, has Jesus trusted you? And that sets him back on the throne and puts us in our place. You see? All right, so our our jumping off passage of Scripture today was, uh, if you look in the bulletin, it was from... 2 Peter 1, 10 and 11, and it says this. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fail, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this is Peter talking, and what does he say? Therefore, my brothers, who's he talking to? If, if Peter addresses a crowd as my brothers, who is he talking to? Well, it could be two different people. He could be talking to the, Jew, the nation of Israel, the physical nation of Israel. How could Peter say, you are my brothers, if they were in that sense? How could Peter say to a bunch of Israelites or Jews, you are my brothers? How could he say that? He can. How can he say it? How can Peter say to a group of Jews, you are my brothers? 
They are. They're sons of Abraham. They're all Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's kids. But that's not the brothers he's talking to here. He's talking to fellow members of the family. He's talking to his brothers in Christ. It, there would be a band of brothers in that sense, the, the apostles, yeah, that you could say that. But, and there's also the brothers, the physical descendants of Abraham are his brothers. And, but in this sense, he's saying, my brother, he's talking about those in Christ. And so what does he encourage us? And for you, you sistren, right? No, they used to say brethren and sistren. I had an old friend that used to say it that way. But when he talks about brothers, he's talking about all of those in Christ. And, it's, and it, there is now no longer male or female, Jew or slave, Jew or Gentile, slave or bond, uh, free. We're all one in Christ. So he, he's not your, your salvation and your eternal uh, his eternal gift of eternal life to you is not based on your gender. And so we are all brothers in Christ in the sense that we were all brothers in Adam, and now we're all brothers in Christ. So some of the newer translations will actually say, therefore, my brothers and sisters. You know, some of them will, uh, and that's okay. If you want to put that in there, it's all right. Like you're not violating anything by saying that. Be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. How do you know you're getting a call? Well, the phone rings. Uh, sometimes I'm at work and I'm at, uh, working on the aisle and somebody, it seems like everybody's got the same ringtone I do because some lady will be walking down the aisle and no matter what ringtone I pick, somebody will come by there and have the same ringtone and I'll immediately check my phone. Why? Because it sounds like my phone, but she picks it up and answers. She's the one being called. When your phone rings, someone is calling you. It may be scam likely, but somebody is calling you. All right? So when you pick up the phone, what do you do? You look at it and you say, oh, I got a call. And if it's mom, I'm going to be excited to pick it up. If it's IRS, I'm not going to be so excited. The IRS actually don't call you. They, they mail you. But there's certain calls that I'm looking forward to. This is one of the calls that we look forward to is that God has called us out of this world into his eternal life. And so what is Peter encouraging us to do? Make sure of your calling and election. See, it's not for me to run around and determine who the elect are. As a pastor, that's not my job. My job is for me to make sure that my calling and election are sure. Well, how will I know that my calling and election is sure? When I rest it in what God has done and not what I'm doing. That's how I will be sure. So what would be one of the first things... That you do when you get a call. You answer it and listen to see who it is. Well, how do you hear from God today? Yeah, that's what we're doing here in Sunday school. So what are we doing? We're checking to make sure he called us. We're checking to make sure we're his people. And there's an assurance in that. Because the wandering sheep don't want to hear from the father. Right? I don't want to hear from the bank when my bill is two months overdue. And the sinner, the one who is not living in fellowship with God, does not want to hear from him. And there is a part of me and you, even as children of God, that we don't want to hear from him sometimes. Believe me, I see you doze in the services. Right? 
that's not even a big deal because it's he who sees me those when I'm trying to study to get ready to give you the service. Even as children of God, we, we fall short at times and we need to work and strive towards making sure that we're his. That I'm not just doing this out of self-will and self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. I'm not just doing this just to, to put a, uh, a ribbon up on my board, you see? We need to make sure that we're doing the things we're doing because they're for God and not us. I'm to love my neighbors and I'm to love God. Am I asking my fellow, my, my next door neighbor to come and be a part of our church service today because I want to toot my horn and say, see, I got somebody to come to church. You get a little gold star in your little Sunday school book. Or does your heart break for them because they're lost? And you know that the only way they're going to ever come to salvation is by hearing the word of God. That should be our desire for bringing others to church. Right? Rescue the perishing, care for the dying, snatch them from pity and sin in the grave. That's that old hymn we sing, Rescue the Perishing. Right? We, we, wanted to, we want to see others know what we know. And that's one of the ways you can be sure that you're his. When you're willing and wanting to share it with others. Not to have everybody be Baptist like you, right? which is what we should be. We should be Baptist. Or not just so that they can walk and talk like me and act like me and not so I can just say, yeah, they, these are the people that I brought into this church. You see, it should be about the body and it should be about him. And so we need to make sure that our election and calling are sure. Because, look what it says next, if you do these things, you will never fail. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. His kingdom, not ours. So by growing in our knowledge of his word and walking in fellowship with him in truth and obedience, we grow closer to him. And that is a a reward that we have here. Because I can tell you, yesterday... I had a piece sitting in that room at that funeral home. And that friend of mine, I'm afraid he was lost. He partied like there was no end. It's actually what killed him. But I had a piece in that room that most, or not most, a lot of the people in that room did not have. It broke my heart for them to sit there and to hear that preacher preach someone into heaven when they never lived their life that way. I hope he's in heaven. I do. I really do. I hope that he's in heaven. I hope that he's a believer. But he never lived his life that way. And he lived with a sadness about him. And a constant leaning on this world for his support and his comfort as opposed to walking and living with Christ. I do hope he's in heaven. He he was a precious soul. I'm not taking that away from him. But there was a lot of people in that room that did not have the comfort and peace that I have, and I'm thankful for it. I'm not bragging about it. I'm just saying until they come and know Christ and know him and his surety, they're never going to have that peace about him. Yes, bro.
Right. Well, when it comes to like Abraham, so one of the signs that you truly were a son of Abraham was circumcision. And that was something that took place. And matter of fact, those kids didn't even get to choose that. It happened on the eighth day or seventh day after the birth. They, they got circumcised. That was a physical representation that you were a child of Abraham. Yes. But... What the Bible says is, is that fleshly circumcision has nothing to do with your eternal state. Because Ishmael was a circumcised child of Abraham, but it was Isaac that got the promise. Esau was a physical descendant of Abraham who was circumcised, but it was Jacob that got the true circumcision. And so what the Bible teaches us, Roy, is that it's not... It's not the age of accountability when you come to decide to follow. Yeah. It's when God reaches down and circumcises your heart. Yeah. He, he does that spiritually. The Holy Spirit comes in and cuts your heart open and makes you a child of God. Now, as a child of God, I then have the choice of whether I'm going to walk in the will of my father or not. And if I don't walk in the will of my father, I will be a miserable person. Because I'm acting like the world and not like my family. And that's one of the things Peter is emphasizing here. Make sure. How do we make sure? We trust and obey. We hear his word. We believe his word. We follow his word. We walk in his word. Yes. So, uh, you know, the, the Bible never teaches the term age of accountability. The Bible says that all of Adam's children are accountable for the actions of their father, Adam. In Adam, we all die. This is Romans 5. If you want to read on that this week, it's Romans 5. And what he's saying is, is that because we're Adam's kids and because of the choices that Adam made, we are not now all accountable to God for what he did. Not only that, we act just like him. We eat the forbidden fruit. We run and hide from him and try to cover our nakedness with things of this world and act like he's not there. Because we're Adam's kids, we act like Adam's kids. And we will all be held accountable. It don't matter the age. So, in other words, so, again, there are a lot of infants that die in the womb that go to heaven. But the point is, is infants in the womb die. If there was no sin involved... They wouldn't die. And because of sin, we are all accountable. The wages of sin is death. And we're all accountable to it, no matter if you're one or 101. And the reality is, is we didn't choose that, did we? Adam did. And we're all suffering for a choice that he made. And you can say that's not fair, but you act just like him. And so what the Bible teaches us, in, Christ, in Adam, all die. In Christ, all have eternal life. 
And so every person in this room is either in Adam or in Christ. The ones who are in Christ are not the ones that wear a suit and come to church every Sunday and don't cuss, don't drink, don't smoke, and don't cheat on their wives and don't hang around with people that do. That's all external stuff. Now, those are important things. We shouldn't smoke, drink, cheat on our wives, or hang around with people that do. Those are important things, but they're all external things. A son of Adam can dress up in a Sunday suit and act like a son of God. And then go right home and kick the cat and cuss the wife. You see? But when God reaches down and circumcises the heart, that's not something we do. That's a circumcision not of hands but of the spirit. When God does that, he's ensuring that we are in Christ, that we are in the family of God. You see how that works? And so when Jesus said you must be born again, he was talking about the spiritual regeneration that takes place when God reaches down and saves you. Now, as a born-again, blood-bought child of God, I am now accountable to him. And not only that, I know the difference. And he has set me free to do what he wills. Before he saved me, all I wanted to do was the same things Adam did. I wanted to hide from God. I wanted to cover up my nakedness and my insufficiencies in my, my desires. And I didn't want anything to hear from him. So all are in Adam and all, or all are in Christ. And we'll finish with this because that's all we're going to have time to do. In Adam all die. In Christ all live. And here's the beauty of it. You, you are accountable to what Christ has done now because you are his. What did he do? Everything that the Father pleased. You see? So now when God looks at you, he does not see who you were in Adam. He sees who you are in Christ. And you're accountable to him. But how does it make you feel knowing that you're pleasing to the Father? You delight in it. You don't have to run from it anymore and and be ashamed of who you are. So the Bible never teaches an age of accountability. The Bible says that all are accountable. And the reality is that some people come to saving faith in Christ at three or four years old. And some people, the thief on the cross, didn't come to faith until his last few breaths. But we need to understand that we are all accountable to God. And we are either all in Adam. And all in Adam, what's going to happen to all who are in Adam? They're going to die. What is going to happen to all of those who are in Christ? They'll all have eternal life. And if you want a good picture of that, think about Noah's Ark. All of those that were in Noah's Ark, what happened when the flood came? They lived. From the the lowest cockroach and snake that was on that boat, to the eagle and the owl and the lion and the elephant, and to Ham, Shem, and Japheth and Noah and his wife. They lived, Why? Because they were in the ark. And when God poured his wrath down on this world, they were spared his wrath because they were in his protection. Well, all of those who are in Christ are now clothed in the goodness of who he is. And I can promise you this. 
when God pours his wrath out on this world, I, of all people, deserve it the most. I know what a wicked person I was in my past life, and I deserve his wrath. But now I live in the hope and the assurance that Jesus took all of that wrath that I deserve when he hung on that cross for me. And not only that, he's clothed me in his goodness and credited me with the life that Jesus lived. So now when the father looks at me, he sees his son, a son of God, not a son of just Adam, if you will. You see? So when it comes to age of accountability, there's no such thing in the Bible. We're all accountable to God from the, the child to the oldest person living. That's exactly who right. Jesus is and what he's done for us. So if they were to die, they would go to heaven. Their, their soul is in God's hands, and that's where it's supposed to be. Okay? So um, it's the same thing for an idiot. When I say idiot, I'm not talking about somebody who's a dummy that you don't like hanging around with. I'm talking about someone who does not have the mental capacity to make decisions. Someone born with mental retardation. Their soul is in God's hands, and that's where it's supposed to be. I cannot find anywhere in the Bible that teaches me that every single person, every single person that never had a chance to make a choice goes to heaven. I don't see that in the Bible. But I don't see where they don't go to heaven because they didn't get to make a choice. Remember, John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit inside his mother's womb. God can reach down into the womb of a mother and save a child. And when it comes to things like our children, our grandchildren... The weight that you feel is because you are responsible to share that truth with that child. And I did that this week with my three-year-old. Sure. Well, and not only that, not just in sitting down and reading the Bible to them, but in your life. Like, show them what the love of Christ looks like. And God will draw all of his, he's not going to, nobody's going to go missing. On the last day, he's not going to be pulling his hair going, oh, there's old Bobby. And he, I, I meant to save him, but he died and went to hell. Like, God's not going to do that. He's got everybody's soul. He's in God. He's in control. And he's in control of your grandson. And as long as you leave it in his hands, you're in good shape. There are a lot. Listen, and guys, I'm going to tell you this. There are a lot of people who got, got pulled by the ear to church all of their life as kids. They didn't want to be there. They want to be home watching cartoons. And they learn how to walk the walk and talk the talk. And a lot of them grew up in homes with parents who were professing believers that were drunks at home. They came to church every week and acted like the cleanest people you ever want to meet. They'd go home and abuse the kids and, and, and cheat at work. And these kids grew up with a resentment because they looked and said, if that is what Christ is about, I don't want anything to do with this person. So you are responsible to live the love of Christ out in your life before your grandkids. And you are responsible to pray for their salvation. And you are responsible to share his truth with them. But their eternal destiny and their salvation is squarely in the hands of God and that's where it needs to be. And you can rest in that. You can rest in the fact that God has them. And we can all do that. 
right? And so the reality is, is there are some people that live their whole life in church and they truly are believers and they live their whole life in church and, and they don't live these dynamic, expressive lives where people are like, wow, that's what a Christian is. They just, they just walk the wall. And there are some people that go out and live like the prodigal and live like hell all of their lives. And then one day God says, nope, I love you too much to let you keep living like that. And through the power of people's prayers and through the sharing of God's truth with people, God starts pulling people himself and saying, no, I love you too much to let you live that way. And what does he do? He breaks their heart and he rips out all that sin out of it. He rips that heart of stone out of it and says, no, you're my child and you're going to live like this. And he puts new life in them. He saves them. God is the one in the saving business, and that, that's a joy to know. So that ends our study for the last six weeks on the decrees of God. And again, these are eternal things, and they're mysterious in the sense that it's not my business to be prying into them and trying to manipulate them and make them what they're not. I just let God's Word teach me what it teaches me, and I just rest in that. I'm going to go home tonight and rest my head on my pillow knowing that God is God and I'm not. And I hope you can do the same. And I hope that over the last few weeks we've seen that those words predestination and election are not dirty, ugly words. They're beautiful realities of who God is. And let's just rest in them. We don't have to go around and brag and boast or, or be proud because that's an obvious sign that you don't understand it. It's not something for us to be proud and to boast about. So I want to thank you guys for being here. Next week, we're going to start in chapter 4. You have your creedal statements there. We'll be in chapter 4, and we're going to start talking about God saying, let there be light. We're going to start talking about uh, the creation. And now we've gone from, now we're going from eternity past into now. Let there be light and the life that we're seeing lived out before us now. Father, thank you.